History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. you spooktacular people welcome to this 368th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is kelly kelly on this episode we're going to be talking about one of our favorite historical figures let me guess did he do a little mind yeah a little mind meld did he perform magic tricks and illusions he did i think i know houdini Woohoo! <laughs> yes, this is someone I have wanted to talk about for quite some time, and it just happened to pop up on our radar. We'll explain why in a little bit when we do the intro. But, you know, Houdini's been done to death by a lot of people, but I wanted to give our perspective on him. And as a matter of fact, I found out a lot of things about him that I didn't know before. So I'm hoping that this will be sharing some things with our listeners that they haven't heard of before either. Hopefully brand new. Hey, Kelly, have you liked magic? I actually have. I was able to go to the Magic Castle in Los cool. Angeles. I've never been as there. a teen. It was a fantastic time. And of course, being close to Vegas in Southern California, I've seen many magic acts. Yeah, I used to love watching the magicians on TV. I've been to a lot of magical acts. I used to do magic when I was a kid here and there. I used to love to buy little tricks and things like that. Awesome. Have you ever seen a magic show where you literally were like, I have no idea how they did that? Oh, absolutely. Now, we all know that magic is a lot of illusions, like, and especially distraction. Like, Definitely. Watch this hand while this hand does something else. Absolutely. But I will never forget, I was on, I think it was a Disney cruise, and they had a magician couple on there. And they did this trick where she came out and she was wearing one of these flowing silk white dresses. Don't know how she could have anything on underneath it. And they locked her up in a chest, put all these padlocks and everything on it, and raised it above the stage. And I mean, it was up to where the lights would be, but you could still see it. So if somebody was playing around up there, getting in and out of it, you'd be able to see. Sure. He held up like this curtain. And then when he dropped it, or maybe she came off the side stage or something like that, and she was wearing a different colored dress. (laughs) Quick change. So I was like, how did she get out of the box back down on the stage? I didn't even know how it'd be humanly possible, even if you were down in a hole. That's the only thing I could think of. I was like, I'm going to be watching in the dining rooms and stuff to see if I see them. Does she have a twin? I doubt they ever are in that public forum together. I would think not. Where they work. <laughs> but that literally was the only way that I could explain how they could have done that. Sure. And I'll tell you, you know me, I am a skeptic, which is really cool about Houdini, because I think Houdini is like you and I and like a lot of our listeners where we want to believe and we do believe some things. We believe that there is something to the afterlife. We just don't know what that is. Exactly. So we're not full on believers and we are seeking to try to prove it, which is a lot of what he was doing. I'm willing to believe a lot of things. And I sometimes do wonder, you know, if people can sell their soul to be these amazing musicians overnight, why couldn't you sell your soul to be able to be amazing magician? Well, quite possible. Yeah. So there's some magic that I have seen in my lifetime where I've been like, you know, I wonder if we really did just see magic. I always loved watching, I think it was Penn and Teller, that TV show where Mm -hmm. they were testing and awarding for the best new magicians that were were working on honing their skills. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was cool because you you ultimately typically get to see how everything was done. Yeah. And so that's me. I'm always probing. I always want to know how it's happening. Well, and they did have like that masked magician that did some specials on TV a few years ago where he was revealing some of their tricks and how they did it. Right. And it, I mean, it's pretty elaborate. Some of the things that they would do and the contraptions that they would build and Houdini definitely did that too. Yep, this is true. Well, now that we've talked all about all that stuff, why don't we go ahead and jump into the actual show and welcome in some spectacular crew members. We have Lorenzo, Alexis, 
Karen, I hope that's how it's said, who spells their name K-E-R-R-I-N. Very unique. And then we have two Carries, Carrie S and Carrie M. Welcome to the crew, you guys. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. Ever have food poisoning? It's a nasty thing that leaves most wishing for the sweet release of death. Food poisoning doesn't happen nearly as often as it used to, and much of that is thanks to the Poison Squad. At the turn of the century, food producers were putting just about anything in as fillers for their food. There was borax, formaldehyde, chalk, and copper sulfate added to food, and things like lard were passed off as butter. This on top of the fact that keeping food free of bacteria was difficult before modern refrigeration and stuff. And the government didn't care. So a chemist named Dr. Harvey Wiley, who worked for the USDA, decided he needed to do something. He needed a way to get the government's attention, so that it started forcing food companies to label their food with ingredients. Dr. Wiley also worried about long-term effects of food additives. So he gathered together several strapping young men and named them the Poison Squad. This name reflected the fact that he was going to actively poison them. The squad became a pop culture sensation and really heroes for their efforts. In 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed. Soon, the formation of the FDA would follow. Poisoning a bunch of young men to prove how dangerous bad food could be certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of January, on the 27th in 1908, Houdini debuts his milk can escape trick at the Columbia Theater in St. Louis. Houdini poked the can and turned it upside down to reveal that there was no hole on the stage. He stood in a blue bathing suit as he was handcuffed. The giant milk can was filled with water and Houdini stepped inside, sloshing water everywhere. A lid was put over the top and locked down with six padlocks. A cabinet was put in front of the milk can so no one could see it, and two minutes later, Houdini peeked out from behind the cabinet, dripping wet and panting from holding his breath. He was free of the handcuffs, but the padlocks remained on the can. How he escaped, no one knows, but this became one of his most famous acts, and he did it over and over. He would copyright his tricks, but never apply for patents for his inventions, because he didn't want to give his secrets away. The Houdini estate crossed our radar about a month ago when our friend Maria posted on her Hollywood exhumed Instagram account about a brush fire near the location. This was a bit concerning because while most brush fires are easily put out, this is California, where one spark can burn down half the state. Don't we know that, especially after this last year? This is true, and I I know that especially well after living there for 45 years. Yeah, you would pretty much see the fires right up on the hill in Every single year. This got us to wondering if the Houdini estate was haunted, which led us down a path of wondering why this estate carried the name of a man who never lived there. And this led to researching his house in New York and whether it is haunted. Many listeners are probably very familiar with the stories of seances trying to conjure a message from Houdini. Has Houdini made his presence known from the other side of the veil? On this episode, we explore the fascinating life and legend of Houdini and share the history and haunts connected to this amazing man who just may still be with us. Oh, 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 
Ladies and gentlemen, presenting for your entertainment and amazement, the king of handcuffs, the master of manacles, Harry Houdini. Kelly, we did an episode on spiritualism back on episode 191, and we talked about the fact that Houdini effectively stopped the spiritualism movement from continuing to grow. Now, we know it still is here, especially here in Florida. We actually have their summer camp for spiritualism in Casadega. Right. Which eventually I'm going to get you over there so we can get some really good (laughs) dousing rods. You keep saying that. I'm waiting. So we know this still continues today, but this was a sweeping movement during the Victorian era, and it came to a pretty abrupt halt. Does this mean that Houdini didn't believe in the afterlife or ghosts or even the ability to speak with spirits? As we said earlier, we don't think so, but it certainly gave him fire to expose the rampant fraud that was part of the movement. Houdini was demonstrating how mediums were doing what they did during seances. His talent for magic started early. He was born Eric Wise in Budapest, Hungary on March 24, 1874 to Mayor Wise and his second wife, Cecilia Steiner. The Wise family emigrated to Wisconsin four years later and changed the spelling of their name. It was originally W-E-I-S-Z to Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. And Eric, who had spelled his name E-R-I-K, switched it to E-H-R-I-C-H, which eventually became Harry because the family called him Eri. It was E-H-R-I-E, so Eri becomes Harry. Harry grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, where his father served as a rabbi. No one knows where Harry got his first taste of magic, but he was fascinated with it and soon found an idol in Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin. This is where he would get the inspiration for his stage name of Houdini. He simply added an I to his idol's name. There are those who claim that Harry apprenticed with a locksmith when he was a kid, and that is how he learned to pick locks, and he became so proficient he could do it with his eyes closed. It's an interesting legend to be sure. We're not sure if it's true but it would explain why he was so good at picking locks. Houdini started his stage career at the age of nine doing a trapeze act, calling himself Eric the Prince of the Air. In 1887, Houdini and his father moved to New York, and the family later joined them. During the day, young Eric worked in a necktie factory, and at night he entertained in the beer halls. He started his professional magic career at the age of 17. His brother Theo had joined him and worked as his assistant. The two brothers' most famous act was metamorphosis. Houdini would lock Theo in a box, a curtain would drop, and when it rose a few seconds later, Houdini had switched places with Theo and was now in the locked box. Theo would go on to become a very successful magician himself, performing in Europe as Hardeen, and he was the one who pioneered the escape from a straitjacket act. He inherited Houdini's equipment upon his death. Even though the magic was good, Houdini was not getting much traction with it and even considered quitting and opening up a magic school. There was this magician who had taken Houdini under his wing and was kind of showing him a few of his tricks, and most of them were card tricks. And I guess card tricks were becoming kind of a boring thing to people. They just weren't really going anywhere. But this guy noticed that Houdini had a talent for other things, like doing a lot of this stunt type stuff. And I think he's the one who got him started in doing the handcuff thing. It was during a performance at Coney Island in 1894 that Houdini met Wilhelmina Beatrice Rahner, a singer and dancer with the Floral Sisters. She went by the name Bess and was initially courted by Theo, but Houdini won her heart and married her on June 22, 1894. So she dated both of the brothers Houdini. Scandalous. (laughs) Bess then became his stage assistant and would do that for the rest of Houdini's life. She was a little thing, too, although Houdini was not a very tall guy himself. The couple traveled as the Houdinis and performed with the circus. The magic career still was not taking off, and Houdini remembered back to where this handcuff thing was really something that was catching on, so he decided that he was going to add that to the act. He figured out how to get out of these handcuffs, and this became his focus. In 1899, vaudeville impresario Martin Beck caught the act, and he told Houdini that he wanted to manage him, but that he needed to focus on those escape acts. Beck soon had Houdini booked at the best venues in America and then took the act over to Europe. As part of the act, Houdini would challenge members of the audience to lock him up in the handcuffs so that they knew the handcuffs were real. Houdini would visit local jails and ask the police to lock him in shackles and he would get out of them. Soon, people were calling him the King of Handcuffs. The shows became sellouts across Europe and when he returned home, he upped the ante by doing high-profile escapes one of which was breaking out of the jail cell that once held Charles Guiteau, the man who assassinated President James A. Garfield. 
Handcuffs soon became straitjackets that Houdini got out of, and he started adding other elements like water-filled tanks and crates that were nailed shut. Houdini returned to Europe again and again to perform, and in 1902, the German slander trial took place. A police officer named Werner Graf from Cologne claimed that Houdini had bribed him to rig an escape from the city jail. The claim was posted in a Cologne newspaper, and a civilian jail employee also claimed to have been paid to help with a public demonstration. Houdini was outraged and sued. He had been through this once before in Germany. The police had not been friendly when he was there before, and the police challenged him to prove he was legit. He did that by allowing them to clamp his hands behind his back with thumbscrews, finger locks, and hand and elbow irons. His mouth was taped shut, and he was put under a blanket. He freed himself in six minutes. So Houdini was not going to let these accusations stand. He won the case by freeing himself from locked chains in front of the judge. Yeah, I love this judge because he's like, okay, these men are saying, you know, basically that you paid them to help you get keys and all kinds of things to get out of this stuff. So I think the best way to prove it is for you just to show me that you can do it. Absolutely. And he did. The Houdinis had become very wealthy at this point. Houdini adored his mother and he bought a dress that may have been made for Queen Victoria. And then he held a reception for his relatives and presented his mother in the dress. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be so cool? Aw, so sweet. Houdini claimed that this was the happiest day of his life. In 1904, the Houdinis bought a brownstone in Harlem, New York City at 278 West 113th Street. The brownstone recently got a new owner in 2018 who bought it for $3.6 million. Good grief. Houdini and Bess lived in the Harlem townhouse for 22 years. They paid $24,000 for it at that time, which I believe today would be about 600 and something thousand. So that's how much value it's gotten. This is up to 3.6 million. And the initial asking price was 4.6. Wow. The townhouse was built sometime in 1890 and Houdini quickly made the place his space, adding all kinds of neat contraptions. There's a blog. If you guys want to know anything about Harry Houdini, Wild About Harry is the blog for you. I encourage you guys to check it out. He has all kinds of historical photos and documents and just everything you'd ever want to know about Houdini. Clearly, we're only going to be touching on the high points here. So he's got so much great stuff over there. Anyway, on this blog, he writes about the inside of the house. Houdini had a gigantic sunken bathtub and a large mirror installed to practice his underwater effects. The bathroom tiles were engraved with an H while Bess's bathroom sported a B. Houdini also had the entire house wired for sound, including an early wireless radio in the carpets, so he could amaze visitors with mind-reading effects. Oh my gosh. So he probably heard them whispering things to each other and said, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Even the front door was an illusion. It looked normal, but when you turn the knob, it opened from the hinge side. <laughs> oh, how funny. <laughs> it's kind of like we almost have a magical door here. Most people, you know, they expect doors, your front door to open in. Ours open out because of hurricanes. <laughs> and it took me quite a while to get used to that after moving from California. <laughs> yeah. I'd constantly turn the knob and try to pull and it wouldn't <laughs> go anywhere. <laughs> and you have to be careful when you're opening it because sometimes if people don't know, Knock someone you don't want to hit them. <laughs> this is true. Many family members would live with the Houdinis. One was Houdini's brother, Dr. Leopold Weiss, who was New York's first radiologist. He practiced out of the brownstone while he lived there. An intruder attacked Leo in the house in 1907 with a razor, and the man was later captured. The reports never mentioned that this was Houdini's house. The year 1913 was a tough one for Houdini. He adored his mother, and she passed away that year. The magician was away at the time, and her body was kept in the parlor for a full week. Yeah, he told his brother that he wanted to see his mother one yeah. last time, so please keep her for me. The smell of decay stayed in the house for a long time. And in 1914, Houdini tried to sell the house. He was unsuccessful, so they would rent it out. He and Bess eventually moved back into the brownstone in 1918. The house was filled with books, and Houdini called it his library. He wept outside of the house before leaving on his last tour because, as he told a friend, he would never see his house again. He died later that year. But perhaps he did see his home again. Yeah, it's an interesting story. It's almost like he had a premonition. Definitely sounds that way. Because the full story that I'd heard is that they were driving away and it's like raining. And he tells his friend, can you go back to the house? And his friend's like, why did you forget something? And he was like, no, 
And he's thinking, why do you need to go back to the house? So he drives him back to the house. And he said, Houdini just got out of the car and stood in the rain, just looking at the house. And he was getting soaked. Aww. And then when he got in the car, he just told him, I don't think I'm ever going to see my house again. I was like, wow, it's amazing how people have those premonitions sometimes. Beth sold the house to their neighbors, the Bananos, and left much of the furniture and Houdini's tricks there in the basement, where they remained long after her death. Here's what I think happened, because Houdini wanted his brother to have his stuff, and we're going to talk a little bit about an agreement that they made later. But I'm thinking that Hardin took the items that he wanted to use in his performances, and then they just left the rest stored here, and that's where they're going to stay. Rose Bonanno was their daughter, and she upkept the house and the history, even leaving it on just DC current into the 1980s. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm like, you might want to update some of that stuff. <laughs> she started hosting seances inside the house to try to contact Houdini, and she even claimed to receive a phone call from him, and he told her and others to look at, quote, Paper Magic, page 118, figure 12, end quote. The group couldn't follow those directions entirely because apparently the book had no figure 12 on that page. Huh. So not exactly sure what happened there, but a live Halloween seance was broadcast from the house in the early 1970s. Rose's brother Charles inherited the house when she died in 1978. By that time, the house was in the middle of a slum. So remember, this is Harlem. It's going downhill pretty quick. Right. Louis Moisey bought the house in 1980 and the Houdini treasures were auctioned off. So that's how long they were just sitting in this house that wasn't even owned by a Houdini. That's amazing. By 1985, a man named Mr. Wilkes owned the house and he claimed that Houdini's ghost was there. He told a visiting magician that the spirit of Houdini was a regular visitor and he said, One night he turned the lights on and woke me up from a sound sleep. A man named Fred Thomas bought it in 1991. And of course, as we said earlier, it just recently sold a couple of years ago. I'm not exactly sure who bought it at that time. Thomas always maintained that there was no spirit in his home. Here's the crazy thing. Can you imagine buying Houdini's former home and having no idea that the man had lived there? Absolutely not. I'd want to know that history. That was his claim. He had no idea that Houdini had lived in this place. And he started noticing that people were always taking pictures of his brownstone and he was getting really irritated with it. <laughs> and so finally, one day he just asked a neighbor or mentioned it to a neighbor and a neighbor was like, well, you know, that's Houdini's old house. Now, instead of being really excited about that, which I would be like, holy cow. OK, I'm turning my house into a museum like now. Definitely. <laughs> he just continued to be really upset about it and did not like that people were taking pictures of it and stuff. Wow. Bummer for him. But now he no longer has to worry about that, I guess. And now I'm like, I wish we'd gone over to Harlem and found it while we were in New York. Yeah, totally. Houdini liked to write of his exploits and even attacked some of his magic rivals in publications. His idol, Robert Houdin, was one such person whom he wrote a book about, exposing him as a fraud. Many people don't know that Houdini loved aviation and became a pilot. In 1909, he bought a French-made Voisin biplane, which he crashed on his first flight with it. He later made three successful flights near Melbourne, Australia in 1910 with that plane. These were some of the first powered flights in Australia. Houdini started using film as a part of his vaudeville act in 1906. In 1918, Houdini signed a contract to star in a 15-part silent serial that was called The Master Mystery, which features Houdini playing an undercover agent who does several of his escape acts to thwart criminals. He was then signed by famous players Lasky Corporation, Paramount Pictures, and made two films, The Grim Game in 1919 and Terror Island in 1920. Film buffs claim that The Grim Game was Houdini's best film. He then launched his own studio called the Houdini Picture Corporation and made two films with that, The Man from Beyond and Haldane of the Secret Service. He lost a bunch of money with these exploits and gave up the movie business in 1923. Yeah, I find it interesting. The magical acts and the stunts and everything did not cross over to film well. Just didn't work for him. Yeah, that is kind of odd. And it wasn't like he wasn't a good looking guy with a very nice physique. So, you know, he he had movie star kind of looks and everything like that and star power. But I don't know, for some reason, it just didn't cross over to film. Now, of course, these are silent films, too. So, right. That could definitely play a part in it. It was during this movie time that Houdini took up residence in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. There is a bunch of confusion here, so let's try to break this down the best we can. Now, this is going to be our understanding based on the research that we did, because there are a lot of different stories out there. There are a lot of different homes that have been on different properties that are not located there anymore. So 
Here's what we believe to be the truth. We mentioned the Houdini estate is what inspired this episode. While it carries his name, he never lived there. In 1919, Houdini rented a cottage located at 2435 Laurel Canyon Boulevard. And this would have been like across the street from the Houdini estate. I don't even know if the street was there at the time. So I don't know that it was actually across the street. But it was like the guest house for the mansion that is now called the Houdini estate. He stayed there while making movies. There is some indication that Bess lived here after his death for a bit from 1934 to 1936. This cottage no longer exists. Not only that, we have absolutely no pictures of them at this cottage, outside of this cottage, so there is actually no photographic evidence for them living there, except for one picture that Wild About Harry has where they're standing outside of a place that has vegetation that looks like California and a style of house. You could just see part of it that could have been this cottage. That's all they've been able to find. There was another house at 2400 Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which is today the Houdini Estate. And it actually did not have that number 2400 back at that time. It was a different number. It was like 39 something. This was the main mansion with the cottage as its guest house, as I said. Now there is a pool that was at the Houdini Estate. And it is said that Houdini did use this to practice his tricks and acts. And there are some pictures of him swimming in the pool and sunning himself outside of that pool. So he definitely visited this location and was there at some point. At 2451 Laurel Canyon Boulevard is a place called The Mansion, which we mentioned in our Haunted Music episode. So if you guys go back to that, remember the place where we said Red Hot Chili Peppers made one of their albums? This is a home that was owned by Rick Rubin, and it is a recording studio that is really haunted. We shared a bunch of haunted stories and ghost stories from that. I think Slipknot also uh, recorded some of their stuff there. There is a claim that Houdini lived here too, but that is not true. He never lived at this mansion. As far as I know, it was never really a home. It's mostly just been a recording studio. But there are people who say that they've seen the spirit of Houdini in that house, that he haunts it. Could be possible. It's right there. And how many times does Laurel Canyon come up when you're talking about haunted locations? This is very true. So that Laurel Canyon area is just haunted like crazy. This is a a really highly energetic place. So maybe Houdini could be here and haunting these places just based on that. The Houdini estate was built in the early 1900s in the Edwardian architectural style. Ralph M. Walker was the owner when Houdini lived in the cottage. This is a really cool place with hidden tunnels, caves, terrace gardens, and the pool, which is a deep water tank. This is what Houdini used for his practicing. When Bess lived at the cottage after Houdini's death, she hosted a party for 500 magicians and several seances at the bigger mansion. The Houdini estate burned in 1959 and was rebuilt. So the house that's there now is not the original. Jose Luis Nazar is the current owner and the location is used for events. Fun fact, after the estate burned down, the tunnels and caves became... (laughs) The tunnels and caves became home for hippies and vagrants, one of whom called him... Really? One of whom called himself Robin Hood. He thought Laurel Canyon was Sherwood Forest and he would shoot arrows at trespassers. (laughs) (laughs) Takes all kinds. But did he wear tights? (laughs) (laughs) There are stories that this location is haunted by Houdini. The specter of a man has been seen here, but no one can say for sure that it is Houdini. It is believed that a homeless man had died on the property at some time and some legends claim that it was Robin Hood. None of his merry men? (laughs) I don't know. It's only him. So maybe it's just this guy. Again, I don't even know how you would know it was Houdini unless you saw his full-bodied apparition. Right. Or if you're taking equipment out there and it claims to be Houdini, like EVP or something. But as far as I know, nobody's ever done any kind of a real ghost hunt at this location. Which is surprising. Yeah. And I don't think they have... I mean, obviously, they really play up the whole Houdini thing, even though he never lived there. I don't know if they have any artifacts on hand, so I'm not even sure why he would be there unless you're having something residual with the pool. I'm not sure. Also, we have the fact that Bess held seances there. Did they call Houdini to come there and that could be what's going on too? Could be. That's why people believe that they did live in that cottage, that somehow she had some kind of comfort about this location and was comfortable enough to know the owner to be able to be like, hey, I want to have, you know, 500 magicians show up for a party. Can I have the house? 
Houdini continued to create new acts and even challenged audiences to come up with ideas for his acts. Cities he visited would challenge him in unique ways. Scranton, Pennsylvania filled a barrel with beer and asked Houdini to escape from handcuffs within the barrel. It is Orlando Beer Week, Kelly, so that's kind of fitting. (laughs) I do like beer. I don't think, however, I'd want to be locked into a barrel of it. Yeah, something tells me probably not. It might be good for the hair, though. Oh, good grief. I'll dunk (laughs) you. In 1911, a group of Boston businessmen came up with a really gross idea, Kelly. Wait till you hear this one. A whale had washed up in the harbor, and they challenged Houdini to escape from its belly. Oh, my word. I mean, I know he was a showman, but there are some limits. (laughs) That is horrific. Clearly not for him, though. Thousands of people watched as Houdini was handcuffed, shackled in leg irons, and then put inside the whale, which was then covered in chains and placed behind a curtain. Oh, my gosh. Houdini was free in 15 minutes. So this was an act that took him quite a while to get free from. But he said the embalming fluid nearly killed him. Oh, so the they had embalmed the I, whale? Apparently, I guess. To keep it from rotting? I, probably. And I mean, they would almost have to because, oh, yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, I guess that's maybe, a. I mean, you don't want to be inhaling that or no, getting that on you. That's so. what he was thinking is, yeah. And I mean, inhaling those fumes could not be good for you. Definitely not. But I think I'd rather deal with that than rotting flesh. <laughs> yeah, I would. Ew, and, uh, the things that come with that, I'm not even going to get into the specifics. Yeah. The Chinese water torture cell would enter Houdini's act in 1912. This would become his trademark act and would remain in his performances for the rest of his life. Houdini would be suspended by his feet and lowered upside down into a locked glass cabinet that was filled with water. The act forced him to hold his breath for more than three minutes to escape. Dang. So when he was doing all the practicing in those pools, I imagine a lot of it was just holding his breath underwater. I'm sure. Houdini did share some of his secrets. He would enlarge his shoulders and chest when being locked up into a straitjacket to give himself wiggle room. He picked locks with shoelaces, lockpicks, and keys. And while Houdini had gone after some of his rivals, he was also the greatest proponent of magic and tried hard to bring as many magicians together as he could. The Society of American Magicians, a.k.a. SAM, was founded in the back room of Martinka's Magic Shop in New York in 1902. Houdini became its president in 1917 and held that until his death in 1926. He expanded membership and sought to make this one large and strong unified group. Houdini had loved his mother deeply and he was crushed by her death. He had been inconsolable and visited her gravesite often, calling out to her and talking to her. He desperately wanted to speak to her again even after death and he sought out mediums with which he could do this. He ended up with nothing but disappointment. His worst experience came at the hands of his good friend, author Arthur Conan Doyle, and it was his wife. She offered to give him a reading from his mother. Mrs. Doyle sat at a table and wrote nearly a hundred words in response to questions Houdini asked. One part of this message read, Oh, my darling, thank God, thank God, at last I'm through. I've tried oh so often. Now I'm happy. Why, of course I want to talk to my boy, my own beloved boy. Friends, thank you, thank you with all my heart for this. You've answered the cry of my heart and of his. God bless him a thousandfold. For all his life for me, never had a mother such a son. Tell him not to grieve. Soon he will get all the evidence he's anxious for. I want him to know that I have bridged the gulf, which is what I wanted, oh so much. Now I can be in peace. Houdini knew it was a lie for several reasons. The writing was in English, and Houdini's mother did not know the language. She uh, mostly spoke Yiddish. She was not very good with English. Mrs. Doyle drew a cross at the top of the page, but the Houdini family was Jewish. The experience happened on Houdini's mother's birthday, but she made no mention of the special date. The friendship with Doyle ended. Now, we put this into a paragraph, but this friendship that he had with Arthur Conan Doyle, how his wife came to be a medium, is a very long story. I encourage you to check out Troy Taylor's American Hauntings book. He really gets into a lot of the little details about this and how this all came about and how she thinks that she has this power and this experience that they had and all the words that were written and all that stuff. But it's a a pretty long thing. It wasn't like their friendship just ended right at that moment because Houdini was a really nice guy and tried to look good, I guess, and, and try to keep things nice. And so he and the Doyles would still continue to do things in the future and stuff. But there was always that tension there. 
After a few years of this, Houdini was sick of all the fraud. He decided to make it his mission to weed out the frauds, and he traveled the country revealing how mediums pulled off their demonstrations with his expertise in illusion. He always maintained that he believed it was possible to communicate with the dead, but he found no evidence that any medium was communicating with spirits. While in Europe, he attended two seances a day and exposed 100 mediums. The magician joined a Scientific American committee that offered a prize to anyone who could prove they were a psychic. The committee built a fraud prevention box for mediums to sit inside. I'm going to see if I can get a picture of that to share with you guys because it's a pretty unusual looking contraption. (laughs) Houdini even testified before a congressional subcommittee in support of an anti-fortune telling bill introduced into Congress in 1926. He angrily talked about how spiritualism had entered the White House and that First Lady Harding and First Lady Coolidge had consulted mediums. He accused spiritualism of running the government. It was meant to outlaw any kind of psychic activity for money. The bill failed because of the constitutional guarantee of religious freedom and spiritualism is a religion. Yeah, so I don't know where that crosses the line when you are making money from it, too. But, you know, churches make money. So I'm not sure how that all works out. Anyway, that bill never did come to fruition. But it's very interesting to think that Houdini would be testifying before Congress, like we see so many stars today and stuff testifying about whatever their cause for that moment is. And Houdini was one of those who did that very same thing. And again, this is another storyline that goes on and on and on. You can read more about that in Troy Taylor's book as well. How much traveling he did, how many different mediums he worked with and exposed, all of the different back and forths that they had there. Lots and lots of stories connected to that. And I wonder how much more he could have gotten done in his life if he would have put his energies into something else. Exposing all of these mediums as frauds might have given him some personal satisfaction, but it really didn't further himself, I wouldn't think, and what he was doing with his life. The circumstances around Houdini's death are a bit of a mystery. He died on Halloween in 1926 of peritonitis from a ruptured appendix. How that appendix ruptured is the mystery. Some believe he was sick for days with appendicitis and never sought medical help, so the appendix finally burst. This is highly likely because Houdini shares something in common with me when it comes to doctors. He didn't like to go to them? That is true. I am the same. He was like me. He just didn't like going to the doctor. So even though he was in this kind of pain and everything, he didn't get it taken care of. Another story, and this might be connected to this, claims that a McGill University student named J. Gordon Whitehead gave Houdini a blow or two to the stomach that either Houdini wasn't prepared for or was too weak from being sick to tighten enough against. So I guess there was a saying where Houdini would go around and tell people that he could take really hard hits to his stomach. As I said, he had a really nice physique. He was very built Hey, I used to do bodybuilding, so I can tell when a physique (laughs) looks really nice. Diane has a thing for Houdini. (laughs) (laughs) This guy clearly was lifting weights, doing push-ups and all that other good stuff. So he had really strong stomach muscles. So he'd always tell people, hit me as hard as you can in the stomach. This kid had heard about that. And he'd said something to Houdini about, you know, I heard about this. And then the story goes, he gave him a bunch of blows, boom, 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 before Houdini was ready for it. Because I don't think he realized the kid was going to hit him. Or I believe that part of the problem was this kid might have said, hey, I heard that you challenge people this way. Can I you know, give you a couple of hits? Houdini was already sick and in pain, but being, I don't know, his ego or whatever, <laughs> he said, go ahead, give me a hit. And he just could not tighten his stomach muscles enough because he was in pain and sick. Whichever the case may be, it obviously did not help what was already a bad issue. I don't think just punching somebody in their stomach is going to cause their appendix to rupture over time like this. I mean, I think this was an ongoing thing. Right. If there wasn't something already seriously wrong going on. Yeah. He actually performed for the last time while sick at the Garrick Theater. He passed out during the show, but was revived and finished his performance. Supposedly, his last words before dying were, I'm tired of fighting. He was buried at Pila Cemetery in Queens. And the thing that's really interesting, Jewish people don't like to have a lot of iconography and stuff with their gravestones and stuff, but they have a, a head bust of Houdini on the top of his. And it's a, a gorgeous looking memorial. There's a woman kind of leaned over on it, a statuary that looks like she's weeping. Oh, he was only 52 years old when he died. As we have mentioned several times, seances have been held to contact Houdini ever since he died. Many of these early ones were hosted by Bess. She tried for 10 years to contact him with no success. 
Early on, she would shut herself in her room every Sunday and try to get a sign from Houdini at the hour of his death. A medium named Arthur Ford got her attention when he gave her a word from Houdini's mother, and that the word was forgive. Houdini had always wanted to hear that from his mother. Apparently, there was some kind of an issue with his brothers, and his mother was angry about it, and he just had wanted to hear that she forgave him for that or something. Gotcha. The formal seances would be held every year on the anniversary of his death on Halloween. The last was the most famous and took place on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood. Best lived in Hollywood in the 1930s with her manager and partner, Edward Saint, and Saint helped her with this final seance. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. We have gathered here at the appointed time. We have complied with all requirements to enable all of you to make your presence known. Members of the spirit world have long known of the intention of this important gathering tonight. All is in readiness. Please now, the time is at hand. Make yourself known to us. Any of you, please, manifest yourself in any way possible. Please let your united strength and knowledge aid Houdini in coming through. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience. And Bessie is here. Your Bessie, who is part of you for 33 years. She's here, Harry, pleading in her heart for a prearranged sign from you. At some point before he died, the Houdinis had figured out a code to use to let each other know that they existed after death. Now, I worded this the way that I did because you're going to hear most people would say Houdini told Bess that if he died before her, here was a code so that he could tell her that he had made it into the afterlife. I don't know that it was necessarily that was the total agreement. I don't think anybody knows for sure because why would he be under the impression that he was going to die before her unless it was, again, this premonition that he was going to go? Because while he did die at the age of 52, we're going to find out Bess doesn't live to be a very old person either. Well, and maybe this was just an agreement between the two of them and they would each try to contact the other. And that's what I that's what I believed. Because if you and I were going to make an agreement, it would be kind of silly for me to say, hey, Kelly, if I die, I'm going to get this message to you to let you know that there is life after the afterlife and that you can come through, but not do it for you to do it for me. <laughs> right. And they both did all of their shows together. She was his assistant. I'm sure that she helped him come up with some of the stuff. So, I mean, she knows all of this stuff. She's as into it as he is. She had to have been into a lot of the spiritualism kind of stuff with him. So who do you think was going around with them to all these other mediums and things too? So I have a feeling that this was a mutual, if we go, here's what we're going to do. And this was so that a spirit medium could not play tricks. Inside Bess's wedding ring was the word Rosabelle, which had been the name of the song she sang in her act when the couple first met in Coney Island. The code was Rosabelle. Answer, tell, pray, answer, look, tell, answer, answer, tell. Okay, so here's what happens. Bess goes to a medium and says, I want to get contact from my husband, Houdini. So if the medium's for real, she's going to say, okay, the first word I hear is Rosabelle. Now we all know what that means. That was a very special word to them, very specific. Not very many people would know that. That's because a lot of mediums, even today, this is what they do when they do a cold reading and stuff. They pick up on signs from people or sometimes they will go back and look into people's histories. A lot of mediums back at this time would go back and look through people's biographies or whatever and figure out things. So that was a word that most people wouldn't know. Maybe a few people would know. So then here comes the rest of the stuff that would make it so that they know for sure. Then the medium, the next word, and it would have to be in this order specifically. They would say answer. Then they would say tell, then they would say pray, answer, look, tell, 
the two answers here are almost like one word together. So it'd be answer, answer, and then tell. So I'm thinking that there would be Rosabelle, answer, tell, pray, answer, look, tell, answer, answer, tell. The other words here, so we know what Rosabelle means, the other words here equaled certain letters. The word answer stood for the letter B. This is something that they'd worked out. I think it's a code that they used on stage. Yeah, definitely. So it would be like to say that they were ready to do something. So this is something they already knew. So answer stands for B. So answer, answer, instead of it being like BB, that stood for the letter V. I don't know, maybe because they both sound the same. Thus, the Houdini secret phrase spelled out the word. These would be the letters B-E-L-I-E-V-E, belief. Bess never got that message. After the final seance, she said, Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. She felt that 10 years was long enough to try, but perhaps Houdini did show up at the last performance. He was a grand showman, so why would he just say a few words or tap out a message? At the end of the seance, there was a clap of thunder right before it started raining. Raining only over the Knickerbocker Hotel. Was that Houdini saying hello? We don't know how the afterlife works. I don't know if you have to learn how to do certain things. Imagine if Houdini could materialize himself completely. There would be absolutely no doubt in the world that there is an afterlife. You can come back. We have spent years searching. There are many people who've spent years searching. I think it's because we're not supposed to know for sure. I agree with that. So I think that there are rules. I don't know what those rules are, but I think there are rules on the other side that they can only do so much. So I don't think that he was allowed to do this where he could send these kinds of messages. But I do find it interesting that this legend is there, that there was this clap of thunder and a rainstorm that just happened to hit around the hotel there at that moment, especially when they were like, we're done. And so it was like, oh, I'm going to give you a heck of an encore then or something. (laughs) Definitely. So whether it really happened or not, it's a really cool story. I just think that this is further proof that there's certain things that you can and cannot do to come through. And I think a lot of the time when we catch stuff, it's by chance. Oh, I absolutely think that. I pretty much think any EVP we've ever caught is just by chance because they have to be speaking to us the entire time. And it's just that one little moment we catch a word or a phrase or something. This was not it for seances. Bess asked Walter B. Gibson, who'd been a friend and ghostwriter for Houdini, to continue hosting a yearly seance. So she was done. But she said, you know, you other people can continue to do stuff if you want to. Gibson passes on to Dorothy Dietrich, a famous magician and illusionist known as the female Houdini. And I'm sure some of our listeners possibly have seen her perform. She owns the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania and hosts the seances there. It claims to be the only building in the world dedicated to Houdini. It features memorabilia and artifacts connected to Houdini and offers tours and magic acts. There are several museums in the world featuring Houdini artifacts, and he willed his scrapbooks and other books to the Library of Congress. I think that's really cool that he made sure that that stuff got to them so that it would be kept for all of time. And you guys have probably seen, I think, Mysteries of the Museum has probably shown these books. And you just, you know, flip through it. And my goodness, what a treasure these scrapbooks are. Beth Houdini died from a heart attack on February 11th, 1943 in California. She was only 67. Wow. So she did not live to a ripe old age. No. That's why I was like, how did they know which one was going to go first? Because, you know, he was a pretty fit guy. He could have lived a, a very long life if he didn't kill himself during a stunt or something. She was not buried next to Harry. This is pretty sad because she was Catholic. So he was buried Jewish. She was buried Catholic, so they're not together. She is interred at Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York. The Houdini Magical Hall of Fame was located in Niagara Falls. It is permanently closed today and now runs as a Ripley's Moving Theater. The museum opened in 1968 under the direction of Henry Muller and Vince DeLorenzo at a different location originally and then moved to the newer location in 1972. Hardeen, or Theo, had kept Houdini's artifacts in storage for 40 years. He had been instructed to have everything burned when he died, but that didn't happen and they went up for auction. Houdini had not wanted his tricks and such to get out, so he would not have been happy about this. He wanted his secrets to remain his secrets. So when all this stuff went up on auction, these two men ran out and bought everything up. 
so that they could open this museum. The building had nothing but issues from the beginning. There were six fires and a freak accident that hurt the director of the museum. He walked through a plate glass window. There was also a robbery. A final fire on April 30th, 1995 destroyed the original water torture cell and the museum never opened again. Anne Fisher did a seance in the building in 1974. She told Houdini that this would be the last time she would try to contact him if he didn't give her a sign. At that very moment, a pot of flowers fell to the ground and so did a book. The book fell open to a page featuring a poster of Houdini entitled, Do Spirits Return? (laughs) He has a little sense of humor. I think so. Was this a sign from Houdini or some other spirit playing games? People in the movie theater claim to hear disembodied voices. Another theater that claims to have Houdini's spirit is the Princess Theater in Montreal, where he was punched before dying. His apparition was seen in a cape and top hat. That theater no longer exists, and we think it was turned into a food court. Wonderful. That was the last I'd heard, (laughs) is that that was the plan for this theater. It was pretty run down, I guess. So what's interesting here is you've got all of these Houdini artifacts all around the world, and we know how things can get attached to artifacts. So it does make me wonder if some of these museums that have his stuff in them, if they have some kind of energy from him, and that sometimes that manifests in some way. Could be. Clearly, we have not had anything that's like definitive. Wow, that's definitely Houdini. We definitely hear his voice or we've definitely seen his apparition because even seeing an apparition in a cape and top hat in a theater. I mean, what haunted theater doesn't have that apparition? In exactly. It? I do find the book opening to that specific page very interesting. And unfortunately, all of these wonderful artifacts that were at this Houdini Magical Hall of Fame were destroyed. It wasn't just the water torture cell. It was pretty much everything in the building. It pretty much burned down to the ground. Well, I think that's probably how he would have wanted it. I think that's exactly how he wanted it. I I don't think he wanted that stuff out there, which is kind of a bummer. He didn't want people to know his tricks. But eventually, I think a lot of magicians have been able to figure out some of the stuff that he did. And this Ripley's Moving Theater was built on top of that location. I find it interesting that he might still be haunting it then after it's been rebuilt here. There wouldn't really be a reason for him to because his artifacts aren't there anymore. Clearly, the possibilities for Houdini to be hanging around in the afterlife are numerous. His props and magical implements could easily have attachments. Could a spirit still be practicing in Laurel Canyon? Is a spirit still at the Houdini house? Houdini, are you still with us? That... Is for you to decide. Oh, just a fascinating man. Between him and Barnum, I can't figure out which of those two in the world of magic, oddities, paranormal, all that good stuff is my favorite, but they both are pretty high on that list. Great, great showman. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. If you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com or in all different varieties of locations on social media where we are located. And we have a lot of feedback to share with you guys at this moment. Kelly, I don't get over to our YouTube channel a lot, but we get a lot of comments over there. And so I have a couple I wanted to share. If you guys are not subscribed to it, please do so. We not only have the podcast that gets loaded up there, and of course that just has a static picture with it, but we do have other videos that are up there. Our Christmas Eve reading is up there. Uh, We also have when we go out to locations and we make videos of those places, those are all up there as well. Destiny on the YouTube video that was about the penitentiary of New Mexico wrote, I had a friend who worked at the New Mexico prison as a correctional officer after the riot, and he was the one who told me about the riot and what had really happened there. He said he was so scared to work there because of how haunted it really was. He said the old cell blocks and cell block four were so dark and black, and he would see red eyes staring at him. He said inmates would hear screams, and he hated having to walk the premises at night because the darkened windows would scare him. He told me other stories having to do with a ball they played with rolling on its own. His request to transfer eventually was granted and he got out of there. (laughs) And then DM Jenny wrote on our YouTube video that featured the Plymouth Ghost Tour. I took a little segment out of that ghost tour. It was one of the first times I'd ever had anything happen on a ghost tour. That's right. We were inside of a house there and the light turns on by itself. It was just a typical little lampshade. It was that one. People have heard me tell the story where I was holding my cell phone, trying to get the stories that she was telling us. My hand was tired. I dropped it to the side of my body. Facing her, the lamp was over to my left where the phone was not facing. And then all of a sudden the lamp turns on by itself. I look down and my phone is pointing at the lamp and I caught it, which I was like, oh my gosh, 
And I said, I think I caught that on video. So cool. I looked back over it, showed it to the tour guide, and sure enough, we had caught it on video. Well, this DM Jenny was watching that video and she goes, I hear an odd warbling sound. And she thought it was about 38 seconds into it. So I was like, huh, I've watched that video and played it in front of people a billion times. Well, maybe not that many. (laughs) And I've never heard anything. So I listened back and oh my gosh. Wouldn't you know. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and play that snippet here for you guys. I put it up on the Spectacular Crew and a lot of people said they heard the same thing. It was on her bucket list, a granddaughter's bucket list. So she brought her. Donna and I stayed overnight, stayed downstairs. The witching hour in that house is like between two and four. So exactly two o'clock, the banging on the pipes started. It's way in the room where we were sleeping. So exactly two o'clock, the banging on the pipes. So exactly two o'clock, the banging on the pipes. What does that sound like to you, Kelly? <laughs> it sounds almost like an old movie ghost sound, like they're going, woo. I know you would think <laughs> that I like caught something off of the Disney and the ghosts scaring right? Mickey and friends and placed it in the middle there. I was like, oh my gosh, that really sounds like, and we're inside of a house. Now, maybe it was something in the distance, but it really does sound like it's right there in the room with us. And right after that is when the light turns on. Yeah, it it doesn't sound like it's in the distance to me at all. And I'm just wondering if somebody was messing with you guys. And the tour guide called the ghost Nathaniel. She's like, thank you, Nathaniel, when he turned the light on or whatever. So I'm like, was that Nathaniel going, I'm going to play with these people. (laughs) And then he turns on the light. I'm like, that's totally me in the afterlife. Oh, absolutely. You and I both. Now, wasn't there a girl that had her hair touched or something in that time frame? too. Well, what she was doing, the story I was trying to get was she was talking about how they'd had people who were sitting down in the dining room area and this girl had a ponytail and they all watched as her ponytail, the the part that was behind her back, got pulled up above her head. That's right. And she's telling that story and then all of a sudden the light turns on. It's like, oh, like it's telling us, yep, that was me. In the crew, we had some fun stories come through. Glenn wrote, so I live in my own place upstairs in the house I grew up in and downstairs is my dad. He hasn't been home in a week. Just started a movie on Netflix and I hear the cabinet close downstairs like I sometimes would when he would be home. I go downstairs to say hello and nobody's home. And I didn't think he would be home early anyway. I go back upstairs, start the movie and hear it again. Again? Nobody. Or is it? Interesting. (laughs) Terry shared in the crew, I worked for an inn many years ago that had been a school from the 1920s or 30s to the 60s. One day I pulled my car into the back where staff parked. I heard knocking on a window on the second floor. There stood a woman. She waved at me and motioned for me to come up. I went to the reception office and asked the girl working who was the woman upstairs. She said no one was there except us. We walked upstairs to the room she was in and no one was there. We searched the entire building, but no one was there. We also had a basement that no one wanted to go into because it felt foreboding. I had a few people tell me that when they took pictures in the gym, a black mass was also in the pictures. When I would go in there by myself, I would tell whoever was there that I was just doing my job, then I would leave. When I would say that, it was like a piece would come to me. Well, and it sounds like at least for the the spirit or entity that was upstairs was a friendly one. Yeah, I would say. (laughs) Come hang out. (laughs) Ty also shared, I've said that I would post some of my paranormal experiences that I've had throughout my life. When you grow up in a family of sensitive people, the paranormal is just normal, like hiccups. This is the only time I've ever experienced sleep paralysis. I don't know how to explain what I felt or experienced earlier this evening other than to just write out what happened. I worked third shift and decided to take a nap before going to work tonight. So I laid down just after 2000, what is that, 8 p.m.? I remember waking up and freaking out because no matter how hard I fought, I couldn't move. The next thing I know, I'm jerked out of my body. I'm standing there staring at myself in bed but I can also see a black figure standing behind me in the entrance to the bathroom. No, I do not have eyes in the back of my head. I do not know the intentions of this figure, just that it's there. Now I'm back in my body and I'm able to move. Also, I'm pissed off. I hate it when anything messes with my sleep. But I roll over to my right side so I can see into the bathroom, which is about 10 feet away from my bed. The black figure was still there. I started going off on it. (laughs) I don't know if I'd be able to do that. I'd be like, get me out of here. My wife came upstairs because she heard me going off and wanted to make sure I was okay. She thought I got a phone call and the person pissed me off. I didn't tell her about my sleep paralysis or the figure. I only told her that I had a dream that made me really angry and I didn't know why. 
The reason I didn't tell her is that we just put her 14-year-old dog down that past weekend. I miss Chloe, and she's alone at home tonight, and I didn't want her to freak out and not sleep. Oh, that makes well, sense. Well, considerate. I do not typically have dreams like this if this was a dream. So, very interesting. Wanted to thank Jeannie for her email. It was very, very sweet. We appreciate that. She said she does not consider us to be like ants, more like people she'd go to the bar and have a beer with. Very good. And that's how we feel about our listeners. Exactly. <laughs> Makes me feel much younger, too. And then we got some information about our last episode. We had the Little Egypt Cemetery, and we were like, what in the world did they get that name for it? Right. Where did that come from? So we heard from a listener named Erica, and also, I'm just going to tell everybody, Scott Booker is basically my research assistant. Yes, he is. <laughs> he does so much stuff for me behind the scenes that he has now become my research assistant. And he had some information. So first, Erica wrote, I was just listening to you on your most recent episode about cemetery hauntings. During the discussion, you and Kelly were wondering why an area was called Little Egypt. Well, I'm born and raised Southern Illinoisian, and the common explanation is that the term was first used after North and Central Illinois had a low grain supply after a hard winter. This was 1830 to 1831. People traveled from the North down to Southern Illinois for food, much like the biblical famine that saw Egypt feeding the masses. I thought that was cool. Also, this area and much of Illinois were less affected by the Dust Bowl that ravaged the West, making the crops grown here very important. The area fully embraces its Little Egypt legacy from towns named Cairo, although they actually pronounce it like the syrup instead. So it's Cairo, I guess, but they spell it Cairo. Metropolis, Thebes, and Sparta, to name a few. They've got street names, iconography, and even the mascot of the University of Southern Illinois, Carbondale. It's home of the Salukis. Go dogs. So I guess that's an Salukis. Egyptian thing. I think it's Salukis. It's, it's a sight hound, I believe. Okay. S-A-L-U-K-I-S. I think so. Maybe I'm wrong. The campus has had pyramids, logos, and a pyramid headstone for one of the former mascots who was named Tut. So thank you for sharing that, Erica. And then Scott added more to that. He sent me the origin of the Little Egypt name. In 1799, Baptist minister John Badgley dubbed the fertile highlands and bottoms near Edwardsville the land of Goshen. Early Edwardsville was known as Goshen. This was a biblical reference to Egypt. Geographic features such as the Mississippi and its floodplain, were like the fertile Nile Valley. The Indian mounds of the area were large at the time and seemed like the pyramids of Egypt. Yeah. The nickname stuck and was reinforced by other events. And then it goes on to talk about the 1830s, where all these people had to come down. And then it also goes on to talk about the different cities that have gotten the names that are Egyptian. Although Illinois was a free state prior to the American Civil War, some residents in Little Egypt still owned slaves. Illinois law generally forbade bringing slaves into Illinois, but a special exemption was given to the salt works near Equality. Wow, what a ironic name there. In addition, an exception was made for slaveholders who held long-term indentured servants or descendants of slaves in the area before it achieved statehood. The Underground Railroad also operated actively in southern Illinois, flowing nearly equally northward and southward, with bounties available for returned slaves appealing to the residents there. Slaves were said to be going to Canaan, the land of milk and honey, for which at first glance Little Egypt would be an easy mistake. Directions to Underground Railroad travelers were coded in Bible verses or songs, and the story of Moses fleeing Egypt was certainly used as an analog to their own plight. Egypt was the land to escape, and Central Illinois represented the biblical Canaan, with Egypt being a treacherous Southern Illinois. So, very cool. And then Scott also managed to get all the names of the people who are buried in Little Egypt. And so I just thought that that was really cool. There's not a whole lot of people buried in there, but uh, definitely it was German people for sure, based on the names. Very cool. And thanks, you guys, for sending that information to us. We really appreciate it. And we enjoy you guys sharing anything for different kinds of experiences that you've had and such. Absolutely. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Jen McIntyre. You're going to be moved into a chest tomb. And Taylor Cunningham. You're going to be placed into a garden tomb. And in three months, you'll have a mug coming to you as well. Thank you so much for supporting HGB. <sighs> Mort? Mort? Mort, wake up. Mort. 
you need to wake up and prepare places for our new executive producers. It's the start of a new year and he's already being lazy. Laying down on the job. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. sit here and wait for Kelly to eat some chips. They lubricate my throat. You're the one who gave me that tip. You know where I got that from? Leanne Rhymes. I was going to say Leanne Rhymes. <laughs> she always says she eats a bunch of chips before she goes on stage. The greasier the better. Huh, that sounds kind of crazy, but then I tried it once and I'm like, my throat does feel kind of like it's a little bit more lubricated. You don't get the rattle so much. Yeah, I mean, she would be an expert about doing vocal stuff, so. And that's why I buy my jalapeno Pringles. Ugh. So you won't mess with them <laughs> because you'll pop and not stop. You're right. I'll eat the whole can in one sitting. <laughs> well, no, not quite that much. But Almost. I just need a few here and there when we record. And now this month in this month in oddity, <laughs> I tell you, there's a lot of odd stuff going on out there. <laughs> he was free of the handcuffs. Halfs. I'm halfs. <laughs> hand. Uh. Theo would go on to become a very successful ma- magician. Magician. <laughs> I'm a magician. Theo would go on to become a very successful ma- Really? <laughs> and he was the one who pioneered the escape. Escape? I can't <laughs> say it. It's not coming out right. <laughs> he did have another magician that had kind of... T- Musician. Musician? Now I'm saying musician. <laughs> he was a musician and a magician. Ah, there you go. It's just a word I made up. I told you guys I'm going to make up my own dictionary <laughs> one of these days. Handcuffs soon became straitjackets that, Houdini- that Houdini got. Stop. <laughs> you guys say something? Almost sounded like, you know, mini Hooney. Mini Hooney. He's a mini Hooney. Well, he wasn't very tall. He wasn't that <laughs> short. <laughs> inhaling those flu- in- <laughs> I must have inhaled some fumes 